As we come to the scripture, may I ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, please be with us now as we open your word. I trust that uh, it will have its perfect work in us uh, that to reveal um, our need for you and to reveal your sufficient grace to us. And not just to reveal it, but Father, that um, this word would work in us, that we would know our weakness and our need for you, and that we would know your sufficient and powerful grace. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Judges in chapter 7, please. Um, I've listed in the bulletin the passage for both chapters 6 and 7. In Judges, I won't read all of that. I'm just going to read a piece of, of chapter 7, first eight verses, and then we'll refer to what we need to, um, to fill things in. So ju- Judges in chapter 7, please, and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, uh, every man to his home. So the people took their provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him and uh, was below him in the valley. And that same night, the Lord said to him, Arise. Go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And then together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, verse 2, I want to pick up this morning as, as the heart of the matter. And then the Lord, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many uh, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Uh, what an odd thing to say to a commander-in-chief. That you have too many soldiers, too many warriors uh, to go up and to really be uh, successful for me to give the hand, uh, give into your hand the, the enemy. I mean, I mean, you're basically saying you're too powerful, you have too many. And so in order for you to be effective, I have to really thin out your ranks, especially how odd that is, because the Midianites, who were the enemies, were 
said in a previous chapter to be as thick as locusts and that their camels were too many to count, meaning they're this huge army. And so now God comes to Gideon and says, you have too many soldiers. Uh, You're not going to be effective. How odd is that? But not as odd as what happens next. What happens next is that God says, okay, you've got 32,000 men here, 32,000 soldiers. Uh, so why don't you ask them this question? Who's really afraid? Who's afraid to go? Uh, and 22,000 of them raise their hands. And God says, dismiss them. Now you're down to 10. And if you're thinking about Gideon, you may have known the previous account of Barak and, and Deborah. And they had 10,000, so, so maybe 10,000, maybe that's the number. But then God says, well, take them down to the stream and have them get some water. And there's going to be uh, those who lap water with their tongues like a, a dog does. So put them aside over here. And then there's going to be those who, who kneel down uh, to, to, to drink. And so I want you to take uh, uh, the lappers. And uh, there's only 300 of those, which means 9,700 would leave him. And so he's left now with 300. And my suspicion is he's he's scratching his head going, why the lappers and not the kneelers? I don't know. It just doesn't. There's been volumes written about that and nobody knows what the rationale is for that one. The other one seems to make sense. The fearful ones go away, but, but why the lappers or why the kneelers? I don't know, but he takes the lappers. And so point is he has 300 men and, 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 and that's all. And I don't know why. Why did God do this? Why did he thin out the ranks to only 300? Remember, when we began to talk about this book, uh, Judges, we said that there were enemies in the land and God had left these enemies in the land for two reasons. One is to test his people, essentially to see what was in their hearts. And the second is to teach them warfare. And so we understand that in the days in which we live, that there are enemies of our souls to test us and also to teach us how to fight spiritually, not physically as they did, but spiritually as they did, uh, spiritually. And so, so now they've got 300 warriors left and, and God's doing all this to test them and to teach them. Um, their problem, it appears, was pride, boastfulness, thinking that they could do it Uh, on their own, do it themselves. And he says, no, I can't let you live under that illusion that you're capable. If you'll turn back to chapter 6, we see the typical cycle that we've been seeing. Remember we said that in this time in history, what we'd see is the people of Israel to forget God and sin, and their sin would be that they would worship the gods of the people in their midst around them and not worship and depend upon God And God alone. So God, in his discipline, would send an oppressor. The oppressor would come and oppress the people in such a way that ultimately they would cry out to God, sometimes in repentance, real repentance, sometimes just in misery. But God, in his grace, would come to them, even sometimes before their actual repentance, come to them and deliver them. He'd raise up a judge, and this judge would ultimately deliver the people. And while the the judge lived, they would live in peace. And so we see a similar thing happening here, chapter 1 in Judges 6. I'm sorry, verse 1 in Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian. And because of Midian, the people of Israel 
made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste uh, the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out, uh, for help uh, to the Lord. And, and we see the situation. The oppression was, was great here. It's, I would even suggest it was even worse than the oppressions that we've seen. It wasn't just that they were paying tribute to some oppressing king that is taking from, from their produce and taking it to the king and giving it to the king and even to some degree impoverishing themselves. Now they were subject to these bandits coming and raiding everything that they have like locusts. That's never a good thing, by the way. Uh, and anyone or any armies compared to locusts because they, they just devastate the land. And so that was the sense of it. These bandits would come so much so that the Israelites would be afraid and they would go into the mountains and live in caves in order to, 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 to live and to keep whatever it is they possibly could to be able to feed themselves and to feed their families. So, so that's the situation in which they find themselves. And so God sends a deliverer, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet, the people of Israel, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now, now this is a little different scenario than what we've, what we've seen. The other times when oppression took place, God sent a deliverer, a judge, a military person. Ultimately, he would come and deliver the people. Now he sends a prophet. That's like having, uh, getting a flat tire on the side of the road and calling AAA and they send a philosopher. And you go, I don't need someone to tell me why this happened or the implications of this happening or what I need to do in order to keep it from happening. I want somebody to come and fix my tire. And so that's what Israel had had become accustomed to God doing. We are miserable because of our sin. We cry out to you, you send somebody to fix it. And they come and they fix it. Well, no, God doesn't immediately fix it. He sends a prophet because he wants to tell them what the problem really is. There's a sense in which if he just fixes it, they may never know. And so he comes and he, he tells them what the problem really is. He says, but you've not obeyed my voice. That's the real problem. And we're like that too, aren't we? I mean, you have marital problems and so you pray or you go seek counsel. And what you're really saying is fix it. Right? No, what you're really saying in a marriage situation is fix him or fix her. You're right. And God says, well, before we get to that, let's talk about what the real problem is. It's likely to be your selfishness. Or uh, students, you know, they get into trouble in school and so they go to their professor and they just want it fixed, meaning extend the deadline. 
And the professor says, well, before we do that, let's talk. What's the real problem here? Uh, you haven't budgeted your time well. You haven't studied whatever the problem is. And we want it fixed. And that's fine. But God often says, before I fix it, let's talk. Before I fix it, let's see what the real problem is. And so he says, you haven't obeyed my voice. One commentator puts it like this. He says, like Israel, we may want to escape from our circumstances while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Sometimes we need understanding more than relief. Sometimes God must give us insight before he dare grant safety. Understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us at times, not simply pacify us. So the prophet comes and says, you haven't obeyed my voice. Literally, he's saying, you haven't listened to me. Uh, Hebrew parents had it great because the word in Hebrew for listen is the same word for obey. And so when Hebrew parents would say, uh, uh, did you did you listen to me? Uh, their kids couldn't just say, well, I heard you <laughs> because they meant, did you obey me? And so the prophet comes in the same way. Have you listened to me? Did, did you hear my word? Didn't you hear that you are to uh, worship me and me alone? But now you've not obeyed my voice. We see the problem was a problem really, of their pride, they thought they could do it themselves. And so now when the battle comes, God can't just fix it. He has to say, no, first, I have to teach you something. I have to show you something. I have to reveal to you something that's true of you that you're not really seeing. This was the problem that Moses had warned against. Uh, before they even went into the land. This passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 11. Moses says to them, take care, that is in entering the land, take care lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command to you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, uh, then your heart will be lifted up and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there, were, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers uh, did not know, that he might humble you and test you uh, to do good to you in the end. That's the purpose of all this. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power, the might of my hand, <clears throat> excuse me, has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that you swore, that he swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. It seems that when times were good, after the judge came and delivered them, then they had this, these years of peace. And during those times of peace, again, they forgot the Lord. They didn't obey his, his voice. So he tested them 
We found out what was in their heart. Now he's going to teach him how to fight. And the way that he teaches them how to fight is a different way than we might suspect that he's going to teach them how, how to fight. Because he's going to tell them, the first thing you need to know, if you're going to be able to, to fight and win, be victorious against the enemy, the first thing you need to know is that you can't do it. The first thing you need to know and see is your own weakness. Everything in this uh, situation screams the weakness of this people. Uh, for instance, we find Gideon, verse 11, chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord, that would be the Lord, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, at uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, uh, the Abrazites. Uh I didn't pronounce that right. While his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. You see, you can't be impressed even with Gideon. Because he's threshing his grain in the wine press. Now, you know what you're supposed to do in a wine press? You're supposed to make wine. That's not a good place for threshing your grain. In fact, it's a bad place for it. You need to be outside to thresh. You need some wind in order to really thresh your grain well. But he was doing it in the wine press because he was afraid. He was doing it in the wine press because he knew if he did it outside that the Midianites would see that he had grain and they would take it from him. And so he was hiding in here. He never once thought, hey, let's raise up an army and defeat these people so we can feed our children. He just said, no, let's hide the best we can and eke out a living as much as we possibly can if we can only sneak it from them then all will be well. And so Gideon's not that impressive here. He's not the one that you would go, I want that guy, the guy that's really afraid, so much so that he's passing over making wine and he's threshing his grain in the wine press. But then verse 12 is an amazing thing. Verse 12 is, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O man of valor. <laughs> and, and the point is, if you know that the Lord is really with you, then you would be a man of valor. So there's a little bit of, uh, I'd hate to ascribe sarcasm to the angel of the Lord, but there's some of that in all of this. Like, hey, are we seeing this right? But then verse 13, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand uh, of, of Midian. And, and, and you get the sense that Gideon knows the stories, but he just doesn't know the Lord. That he, he's heard about him, but he, he just hasn't encountered him. Well then, uh, uh, and the Lord hmm, turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, uh, do not I send you? And then he begins to plead again. He sounds like Moses even at this point and others called by God. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, uh, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. And uh, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. 
And then Gideon asked for a sign. And in part, we can, we can, we can fault him for this because kind of a lack of faith, the angel of the Lord, the Lord has already told him, I'm going to be with you. And he goes, well, I'm not sure about that. But, but he needs some more help from the Lord, it seems, uh, to have the Lord reveal himself to him in a way that will give him confidence. Fortunately for us, we have the scripture and we can go to it and we can say this can be uh, what we know to be true of the Lord. We don't need signs and so forth and so on. But, but at that point in time, Perhaps Gideon did. But again, this is not a hallmark of his faith. This uh, shows that he wasn't able to receive just the word of the Lord and go with it. And there we, there we have it. Um, he, he would take his first assignment, which interestingly was to go to his father's house, his dad's house. And his dad had an altar to the God of Baal there. And he was to tear it down. But even after he receiving this wonderful sign from the Lord, he was afraid to do it during the day when people might see him. So he did it at night so nobody would see him and nobody really would know who did it. Presumably uh, they all did. But, but when he did it at night, still we get this seeing of the weakness of, of Gideon. Then he asked for this sign of which we're all aware, this fleece, this fleece sign. And God comes to him then finally and says, now, I'm afraid if you go up with 32,000 men, you'll think that you won the victory and you'll pat yourselves on the back and that will just be the kiss of death for you because it won't really have fixed the real problem because the real problem is your selfishness and your pride. Turn to Second Corinthians in chapter 12. I read this earlier. But this is the principle of which God is laying out in the life of Gideon. But this is the principle that uh, uh, is there. We see it again in the life of the apostle. And this is a, a situation, Paul begins by saying, I, I must go on boasting. He's writing to the church in Corinth and the church in Corinth uh, interestingly, after all that Paul has done and been the great apostle, uh, the, the church in Corinth has essentially rejected him. And so if you read through 2 Corinthians, you read Paul's defense of his, of his ministry. And, and it's, 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 it's rather, oh, I don't know how to even describe uh, it. It's a bit, um, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit saying, I, I, can't, I can't believe I have to do this after all these years with you and after all I've done. But... But so I'm going to be a fool. I'm going to try to defend myself. <laughs> and so that's what he's doing. And the way that he defends himself, of course, is by saying, well, I have all the marks of the apostle. I've been beaten. And I've been rejected. They've been thrown out of some of the best and worst places uh, when I talk about Jesus. And so that's the mark of the apostle. The mark of the apostle isn't uh, being flashy and all of that and being impressive. Uh, I've been unimpressive. And uh, so that's my... My mark, and so he's basically saying, "Look, here, here's a situation in my in my life, and I've never told you about, and I've never told any about anybody about." And he says, uh, "I know a man, verse two, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven," and he describes this great situation in his life, where the Lord seemed to bring him up in the, the third heaven, into wherever that is, into paradise, as he puts it. He's not quite sure. He says, I don't know even how will that happen. 
into the body or out of the body, I don't know. Uh, but on behalf of this man, verse 5, I'll boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool for I'm speaking the truth. Um, and then verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And you scratch your head and you say, wow, you mean Paul had a problem with pride? And you go, well, how could that be? And the answer is, he was human. (laughs) He was just like you and me. And so he even knows in the midst of all this great ministry and so forth and so on that he has. And I don't know that he would ever suspect, well, I know that he would because he wrote what he wrote knowing he was writing the word of God. But here we are all these millennia later talking about him. And we know him uh, well still. He's one of the most famous people ever. How many people get talked about for 2,000 years, get read for 2,000 years, of all the things that have been written, how many people are reading something this, this old? But, he says, um, to keep me from becoming conceited, that is, to keep me from boasting, to keep me from taking confidence in myself, I was given a reminder. I was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, nobody really knows what this thorn in the flesh uh, was. Uh, some would argue that it was something that was physical in his body, flesh, in his body, a thorn, something painful. A reminder could have been as he had problems with his eyes. We learned from the church in Galatia. Uh, some think it was a recurring malaria kind of a situation that he picked up from all of his travels. Some of the places that he went were known for malaria. And so perhaps that was the situation, this thorn in the flesh. Some think it was simply uh, the, the enemies that were uh, around him all the time, the ones who persecuted him. That comes really out of Judges chapter 2. God says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Now I will say, I will not drive them out, that is the enemies before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And so some people take that and say what was really uh, this thorn in Paul's flesh were all the persecutions that that he suffered and all the difficulties that he faced. I suppose it would be pretty discouraging after you preached what you thought was your best sermon and people took you out and threw stones at you. I think that would probably say, oh, wow, that's a thorn in my flesh. And so so there he was, whatever like, could have been those kinds of things. Others like Luther and Calvin even think, oh, these were the, the, the temptations that he faced all the time because the mark that was on him on his back and that Satan would come against him at various times. Whatever it was, it reminded Paul of his weakness. And Paul was grateful for that. He was grateful for that. Now for Gideon, uh, what reminded him of his weakness is that he was going to go up before the Midianites whose uh, army was as thick as locusts and whose camels could not be counted, they were so many, with 300 soldiers. And as you know that story, he had some empty jars. Well, they weren't quite empty, but jars with uh, candles in them and, uh, and uh, trumpets. And they were to go and face this vast, this vast army. Uh, I suppose if you're looking at all of that and you're thinking about the enemy, uh, you feel weak at that point. Paul felt weak all the time. This thorn in the flesh reminded him that he was a persecutor of the church. 
This thorn in the flesh reminded him, as he put it in other places, he was the chief of all sinners, reminded him of his weakness, that he didn't deserve any of this, that it was a gift from God, and that any success that he saw, any good that he saw, came from God. And, and for Paul, as well as for Gideon, for Paul, that was a, a great blessing to know that weakness because as he puts it here, verse 9, well, verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should uh, leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's the principle of fighting. The principle of spiritual fighting is to know our weakness. Because when we know our weakness, then we will not trust in ourselves. The danger of spiritual warfare is to trust in ourselves. So we are trained in spiritual warfare to know our weakness so that we'll turn to God and trust him. So Paul did. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out looking for these things. That doesn't mean that we go out trying to, trying to make ourselves sick in various ways or, or physically incapacitated or mentally incapacitated or try to stay as ignorant as we possibly can. That's not the point at all. The point is we are weak. The point is we really can't. The point is that we really must depend upon the Lord. I mean, that, that our whole salvation is predicated on that, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we know that. How do we come to faith? We come to faith first by confessing that we can't, that we didn't, that we're unable, that we don't even want to. I mean, we, we confess our weakness before the Lord. And, and what does he do? He saves us. He rescues us. What's our testimony? Not that we were good enough. Not that we knew enough. None of that. Our testimony is that God has rescued me from my sin. God dealt with it so that I can really be his. I have no righteousness. He gave me his. I deserve to be condemned. And yet he forgave my sins. I mean, that's the, that's the whole guts of our salvation. And now he says, all right, that's how you came in. That's how you live. That's how you came in. That's how you live. Understanding that I am sufficient for you. Many of you know, one of the verses I live on is Psalm 8110. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, your, out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's our posture. That's our life. That's how we go to battle. <laughs> we go to spiritual battle with our mouths wide open. Uh, expecting, hoping that God will fill us because if he doesn't, we know we'll lose this. I mean, think about it. He calls us to follow him. How are we going to do that? He calls us to live a holy life. How are we going to do that? He calls us to evangelize in such a way that people would be persuaded to believe the gospel. How are we going to do that? He expects husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He expects wives to submit to their husbands in a godly way. Expects children to obey their parents. 
He expects us to forgive each other and to love each other and to live with each other. Are we ever going to do that? It's not going to be on the basis of our strength. It's going to be on the basis of his rescue, his salvation, his help, his strength, his wisdom. And we won't go for that until we recognize our wisdom. What's the proverb say? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And when we fear the Lord, what we're saying is that we're trusting him. We're looking to him, not ourselves. And that's the beginning of it, you see. And that's the end of it. We're always in that posture. I mean, Paul knew that. Uh, In this letter, so many times, Paul refers to his own weakness. For instance, if you turn back in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, in verse 8, he tells of another incident in his life. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received this sentence of death. Now, when Paul says that, he means we thought we were going to die. We didn't think we had any capacity at all to live. Um, But then he goes on. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. In other words, he says, we got to this point, but, but rather than despairing, we realized, oh, I'm in this situation, I'm in this moment, so that I won't depend upon myself. And then people would look at him and say, but Paul, you're almost, you're going to die. You can't depend on yourself. You have no strength. Because I know, isn't that great? Oh, why would that be great? Well, because he says, at this moment in time, I'm depending on the Lord more than I was a moment ago. And so what could be wrong with that? So now I really will know the strength of God. He was indeed delivered. Paul knew that in the context of his own ministry. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, uh, to one a fragrance, of death, a fragrance from death to death, uh, to another a fragrance from life to life. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to live in such a way that when I'm around those who are being saved, they see that as life. When I'm around those who are perishing, they'll realize they're perishing. And then his next statement is, who is sufficient for these things? He gets it. He understands. How can any of this take place unless the Lord is, is at work? And then one you know very well, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair and so forth. He says, listen, you can't look at me and think I'm all that strong. The only reason I'm surviving is because the Lord is with me. I'm just a jar of clay. But there's a great treasure here. And the great treasure isn't me. What you see is God. Remember one time when I was a kid, when when I was a kid, we used to, when we would travel in the car, Dad, you might remember this, I don't know, I do. Travel in the car, my parents used to, keep money in the Kleenex box uh, because uh, nobody, who would look there? You know, somebody breaks into your car, who would look in the Kleenex box for money? So uh, we stopped one night at a motel and it was my job to clean out the car as a kid. And I 
was going to get a trash bag, but I realized I didn't need one. There wasn't many Kleenexes left in the box. And so I put all the trash in the Kleenex box and I threw it away. Later, my dad said, hey, did you need a trash bag? I said, no, I just used the Kleenex box. He turned white as a sheet. (laughs) And uh, the Kleenex box wasn't valuable at all. It was what was inside. And Paul said, that's the way we are. We're like this. We have treasures in jars of clay. We need to get our clayness. When we understand our clayness, then we can really understand why we're there. We're there to shine. And what are we shining? We're shining the glory, the glory of Christ, you see. Now, when do we need to tell tell ourselves this story? Well, I think on two occasions. One is that when we're feeling strong, we need to tell ourselves this story. And we need to remind ourselves of it, that it's not our strength that makes us strong. It's knowing our weakness. And if we're feeling strong, it needs to be the strength of the Lord based upon our weakness. The second time we need to tell ourselves this is that when we're feeling weak. And then when we're feeling weak, we can tell ourselves that we're right where God wants us. And his strength will be manifested through our weakness. So so don't stop. Don't stop the witness. Don't stop the holy living. Don't stop whatever it is that you're doing that's godly. Because you don't feel like you have it in you to do it. And realize at that point in time, you are to depend upon him. Francis Schaeffer, uh, years ago, preached a sermon which became the title of a book called No Little People and No Little Places. And in the opening sermon, in chapter in that book of no little people, no little places. Um, he says, this should be the battle cry of Christians. God so used a stick of wood. And when he says that, what he's saying is, do you remember the staff that was in Moses' hand? It was just a piece of wood, just a stick of wood. It may have been an old stick of wood. Shepherds uh, often would get a stick of wood when they began shepherding and keep it for their whole career kind of thing. And uh, Moses had been shepherding for 40 years in Midian of all places. But uh, there he was. And, uh, and, 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 and Schaefer reminds him, what did God do with that stick of wood? Well, he made a snake out of it. They could eat all the snakes that the Egyptian magicians could come up with it. He turned the Nile River into blood. He brought plague after plague after plague after plague. He brought water from a rock. He parted the Red Sea. Why? Because that stick of wood, that staff, became what Moses describes as the staff of God. That's what we're to be. Or to be God's stick of wood. And so when we are dependent upon him, then you see, we're his stick of wood. And even though we're just a stick of wood, what can he do? What can he do? Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would be your stick of wood. That in your hands that we would be strong And we would only be strong because we know that we are not, uh, that we are weak. 
And we need you at every turn. And so I pray that you would make us aware and however it is that you in your sovereign grace can make us aware of our weakness. May we embrace our weakness that we may be strong. But we don't have to pretend that we're weak because we really are. We don't have to make a big deal of the fact that we're weak because we really are. It's just true of us. Help us just simply to know that. To smile when we think of our weakness, knowing that there you will manifest your, your strength. We pray on this day for those who feel particular weaknesses, whether it's physical weaknesses like um, those who are going under various and sundry uh, difficulties. For Kim Johnson's mom, we pray for her as she's dealing with these heart issues. Please be with her. For Paul Marks on the death of his dad, that you would be with him, that he would have strength in the midst of this weakness. And for those who are facing it relationally, those who are facing it socially, those who are facing it financially, in various ways, that seeing our weakness would not debilitate us, but rather cause us even more to depend upon you. And that God, you would show up at those points of weakness with great strength. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.